From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backhold. It is my pleasure to be sitting in for Tony Perkins today on this Thanksgiving week as we continually try to give you reasons to be thankful. We have a great lineup of guests today. We are going to start by talking with Jay Richards, who is one of the um, authors of a, an important new book called The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Then we are going to talk to another author, Jay Cribb, who has written a book called Old Abe, and he's going to talk about the many connections between Abraham Lincoln and Thanksgiving. We think of Abraham Lincoln for many reasons, not first of which is typically Thanksgiving and the role that he has played in this important holiday that we are all walking into. And then we are going to speak with FRC's own Ariel Del Turco about a new paper she has released, helped author and release called Criminalizing Conscience, and it's the status of apostasy, blasphemy, and anti-conversion laws around the world, an important uh, religious freedom conversation that we're going to have toward the end of the show, and then David Clausen, who is a senior fellow for Ethics and Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council is going to send us out on a great Thanksgiving note as we send you into tomorrow with your families and Thanksgiving. But to get the show kicked off today, we're going to bring in Jay Richards. Dr. Richards, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you, Joseph. Well, we are we are gr- thrilled to have you. And, and I think, and I actually, I have a copy of your book uh, that mm-hmm. actually arrived at my house a few days ago. And I am excited about this just because it... It says so many things that other people have kind of thought but not really said. And I think what you guys have put together here is important. Um, and, and to set this stage here for this, uh, I'd like you to help us understand how the response that we have had as a country to the coronavirus has compared to other pandemics in the past. It's completely out of proportion. I mean, if you think of a, a really catastrophic pandemic like the Spanish flu in 1917, for instance, which really did kill 40 or 50 million people at a time uh, in the world when the population was much smaller. It was nothing like this. If you think about the swine flu in 2009, uh, most people don't remember that. We had a, a Hong Kong flu in 1968, killed uh, about a million people. It sort of compares probably to the coronavirus, but most people don't remember that. They think of 1968 and political unrest and uh, Woodstock and things like that. This is the first time that the world completely shut itself down in this way. And it's the first time that we ever thought that we would lock down entire populations. That is healthy, sick, young, old students, everyone locked up together. What we did before was quarantine the sick and then isolate the the at risk. So we're basically responded in a way that has never been done before. And we're essentially testing a hypothesis that population-wide lockdowns uh, we thought would somehow slow the spread of this coronavirus. Now, if this is so unprecedented, and and anecdotally, just to agree with the point that you've just made. I, I was talking with a friend in the last few weeks who was a great school teacher, and he talked about the fact that during the swine flu epidemic about a decade ago, he had a child in his class die from the swine flu. Yeah. Te- I think it teaches fourth grade. And a, and a kid, mm-hmm. he said he was just joking with him one day, and he went home sick, and the next day he was dead from the swine flu. And that school, um, th- not only did the class not shut down, nothing happened. It was just, I mean, they were sad, of course. 
course, but there was no mm-hmm. school-wide response to that, and there were actually dead children. Uh, Dr. J. Bhattacharya, a different Dr. J., has said that the... Um, the, the threat to this for children in particular is significantly less lethal than the annual uh, flu that we experience every oh, year. Why is right. it? But, why is it that we have responded so differently to this pandemic than past pandemics? Well, part is I think, the, first of all, I think social media plays a crucial role. I mean, the penetration of social media is really primed to terrify us. That's the first thing. The second is that the projections based on really bad computer models uh, got this very wrong. So in March, we were told that we were dealing with a bug that had an infection fatality rate of 3.4%. The World Health Organization glommed onto that. Public health officials in the United States glommed onto that uh, and assumed that we're dealing with essentially the Spanish flu. Well, there was no evidence for that at all. And within a couple of weeks, we knew that initial model out of the Imperial College London uh, was completely unreliable. But unfortunately, the sort of the motions had been set in place and the panic had been set in place. We honestly think the story of 2020 is as much about the social contagion as it is the viral contagion. The virus, the virus itself is fairly uneventful. It's like something like the Hong Kong flu of 1968. It compares with that. So it's not historic. But this is the first time that you have a planet-wide social contagion that happens in almost every country simultaneously. And we think to explain that, you need the kind of combination of public health authorities buying into a panicked narrative. And then you need the media and the social media magnifying that so that they can truly terrify a population, which they successfully did. We hear a lot about the importance of following the science. Does science have a single view that can be followed when it comes to the coronavirus? Not at all. And in fact, as I mentioned, there was actually no evidence that lockdowns would work. That was a a, a hypothesis waiting to be tested. It it grew up in public health communities in the 2000s. It had never been tested. In fact, it contradicted all the kind of standard uh, wisdom. If you look at things like all the stuff we do, the closing of schools, the population-wide wearing of masks, the kinds of social distancing, the World Health Organization did a survey of all the scientific literature just a year ago, October of 2019, to say, okay, do these non-pharmacological methods, will they stop uh, in the case they were considering a flu pandemic? They said there's actually no scientific evidence that these would make very much difference. That was the World Health Organization just a year ago. And unfortunately, in the frenzy, who and every other public health organization just basically turned on a dime and said, let's actually ignore the established scientific literature on this and just sort of try this stuff and ignore what the actual consequences are and un- ignore the unintended consequences, which we argue in the book, uh, will probably kill as many or more people than the coronavirus itself. Now, this is an interesting relationship, the, the response here, uh, because you have science, which, as you just pointed out, does not necessarily have one opinion. And even when it forms an no. opinion about something, it doesn't necessarily act in act consistently with the findings that it has made in the past. How do politicians who ultimately make decisions about what we should do in response to a situation, how do they decide what science, which scientists to listen to that informs uh, their conclusions? 
Well, this is what we call the tyranny of experts, because the reality is at the very beginning, you mentioned Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford, but there were reputable, you know, world-class reputable scientists at the very beginning saying, look, lockdowns are a bad idea. Don't assume this infection fatality rate. But unfortunately, politicians don't have, to have access to those independent scientists. The, the scientists they have are the scientific officials that happen to be working in the administrative state. So President Trump, for instance, he inherited particular officials like Dr. Anthony Fauci, right? It was already there. He's been in the government for something like 35 years. And so these officials speaking on behalf of science end up having the ear of the politicians who have to make the decisions. And we think that's actually the key problem. We think presidents and prime ministers and governors, they have to have access to the full range of scientific opinion on a subject that exists, including independent scientists that aren't working with the incentives inside the administrative state. We actually think that's one of the things that's most dysfunctional about this. And when you look at cases where it worked well, so for instance, Governor DeSantis in Florida, he actually branched out. He talked to scientists in Europe and Sweden and Asia and was able to act really quickly because he he got good, solid, recent scientific evidence about who was a danger, who was not a danger, and he was able to calibrate his response. Unfortunately, President Trump and, and many other politicians initially uh, just had access to the scientific officials they happened to uh, be listening to in, in the administrative state. And we think that was a key part of the problem. You are also a philosopher, and I, I'm curious, one of the, the things that has been just perplexing to me is to see the increased value that we are now giving to safety. Well, if it even saves one life, and we know that the, the conversation about the reduction in civil liberties, whether it's going to school or going to church or can the government force you to wear a mask, every, everything has been couched in this in this uh, through a lens of safety and how that is the greatest good. Is that the way that we have historically thought about situations like this? Is that the way we should think about this? How would you, how, and, and why is it that America has seems in many ways to be embracing that? Well, I mean, the reality is that I think there's a wider kind of religious uh, explanation in that uh, most of, so many people have lost faith in a kind of wider purpose of life, and so their current health is sort of the primary good. So I think there is that. But I also think this is kind of an intellectual failure to understand that actions have consequences. The most basic thing you want to think about when you're thinking about a public health response is, okay, what are the costs? What's the real risk? And what are the consequences of our response? It's the reason you don't chop off your head to get rid of a migraine headache, because the response is out of proportion uh, to the thing you're trying to fix. You don't want a response that leads to uh, excess deaths of despair and missed cancer screenings and suicides uh, and other kinds of deaths, secondary deaths that end up exceeding the deaths from the thing that you're trying uh, to avoid. That's unfortunately, by thinking in terms of just mere safety and focusing on really treating it as if it's a one-sided risk, as if there's only a danger to life and well-being on one side, when in fact responses can also cost lives. And that was always the problem. It was never, well, we're talking about money on one side versus lives on the other. No, lives were at stake in either case. And so what we wanted is a public health response that maximizes the benefits and minimizes the cost. Unfortunately, we didn't do that. What we did is we responded in a way that's almost all pain, as we think, from looking at the statistics and almost no gain, unfortunately. What's interesting to me is that we went through a round of lockdowns in the spring, and we we all heard about 15 days to flatten the curve, which, of course, became much longer. Uh, now we're seeing an increase in cases. And 
it seems to me that the response is basically exactly the same as what we went through in the spring. Why is that? Is, is that are, are they not learning? Are there things that they're not interested in, these politicians who are making these lockdown decisions? Is there information I'm not aware of that would, that would tell them they should respond in exactly the same way? There's not. In fact, this is just a classic example of not learning. I myself, I'm, I was COVID positive until two weeks ago. I actually had to go to the hospital, spent overnight. And what I noticed is actually the healthcare workers on the front line, they've learned a lot about how to treat this and how not to treat it in, in, in the last seven months or so. Politicians, unfortunately, most of them have learned nothing. I mean, it's one thing to say we're going to lock down for two weeks to slow the pressure on healthcare for a couple of weeks. But here we are months in. We know that the lockdowns correlate not at all to cases or to hospitalizations. And yet we're doing exactly the same thing. Again, that's in some ways, Joseph, what's most depressing about this. I honestly thought when we're talking about this in November, it will be an after action report because we'll have learned that the initial lockdowns are a terrible idea. Unfortunately, we still haven't even learned the most basic lesson of the first round of lockdowns. And, and that would apply to the politicians. The last question I have for you, Dr. J. Richards, why is it that the public has seemed to, to accept these rules in the way they have? I think it's because they have used our moral concern for others against us. We're not doing this for our own good. We're doing it for others. And as long as we believe that, I think we're likely to comply. Dr. Jay Richards, thank you so much for joining us. And for all of you out there who want to hear more about this, the book is The Price of Panic, How Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. You can buy it anywhere that books are being sold, and I suggest that you do. It's a great, important book that's going to help you understand what it is that we're dealing with. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk about Abraham Lincoln and Thanksgiving with John Cribbs. Stay tuned. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In a recent poll, it was revealed that only 6% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. This research also indicated that Christianity's teachings on abortion, marriage, and homosexuality are not only misunderstood, but seen as dangerous and subversive. In response to this trend, Family Research Council has released a new set of resources in our Biblical Worldview series. In addition to our full publications, which cover the topics of Christian political engagement, abortion, religious liberty, and human sexuality, FRC now offers helpful summaries of each publication in this series, as well as accompanying prayer guides to help you and your family pray through these important issues. 
And finally, our popular biblical principles for political engagement is now available in Spanish. All these resources are free and available at frc.org slash worldview. Again, that's frc.org slash worldview. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins today on Washington Watch, and we are easing you into Thanksgiving. And in order to do that, we're going to talk about the origin of Thanksgiving. And though it was back with the pilgrims and the Native Americans who helped them, and there's a great history there, the more recent history of how it came to be something that we recognize uh, in America every single year as a national holiday, in order to help tell us this important story, is an author of a great new book called Old Abe that recounts the last five years of Abraham Lincoln's life. The author is John Cribb. Mr. Cribb, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Hi, Joseph. Well, thank you for having me. Well, we are thrilled to have you because I do think this is an this is an underrated story of Thanksgiving because we don't often talk about Abraham Lincoln, but I know that there's a lot there uh, that that he he's a big part of why it is that we're we're having this week. Um, and why don't you tell us a little bit about um, where what that is? Well, we think about pilgrims at Thanksgiving. What did Abraham Lincoln have to do with this holiday that we're supporting? Well, that's right. Of course, yeah, the Pilgrims in 1621 are what we think of as the first Thanksgiving. But um, after the Pilgrims and as the nation got going in the early years of the Republic, uh, there was really there was no national Thanksgiving holiday. Some states had a day of Thanksgiving, particularly up in the north. Uh, other states did not have any any Thanksgiving at all. And even the ones that did have Thanksgiving, uh, you know, sometimes it would usually be around a harvest time, but maybe October, November, December, even into January. So it was very uh, sporadic. So it's not till 1863, in the middle of the Civil War, that Abraham Lincoln uh, sets aside the last Thursday in November as an uh, annual national Thanksgiving day. Well, it's interesting timing when we think about 1863. was not exactly the best of days for our country. And and it almost seems ironic that that would be the time at which we would begin this tradition of giving thanks to God. Why is it? What what is it about Abraham Lincoln that that made that the moment that he decided we need to have a Thanksgiving holiday? 
Well, the what what triggered it really was a woman named uh, Sarah Josepha Hale, and she was a writer and editor with magazines called uh, Boston Ladies Magazine and then Ladies Godies, uh, Lady, the Godies Lady Book, uh, which was really the most widely read magazine in the country before the Civil War, one of the most widely read. She was an important cultural voice, and uh, she's also, by the way, the author of the poem Mary Had a Little Lamb that we all learned that we, when we were young. But she had been calling for years, starting way back in 1827, for a national Thanksgiving holiday. And she thought it would be good for the unity of the country. So she started writing essays about it. She started writing to presidents, beginning with Zachary Taylor, about it. So she writes Lincoln in September of 1863, asking him to issue this proclamation, uh, setting aside a day for Thanksgiving. And he does it. And Lincoln, in that famous uh, Thanksgiving Day proclamation, he says, even though we're in the middle of this horrible war, there's still a lot to be thankful for. You know, the, the, he says the, the fields are fruitful, you know, the crops are good. Uh, he points out that the nation is at peace with foreign powers, even though it's having this terrible internal war. Settlements are pushing west. Population's actually increasing, but most important, freedom is on the rise uh, because, of course, uh, millions of enslaved Americans have been freed by advancing Union armies and the, uh, and the Emancipation Proclamation. So he sets aside this day last Thursday in November as as he puts it, a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. Because he says these, these, these blessings are not the work of, of mortal men, he says. They are gracious gifts from God. How did the American public, when in the midst of this civil war, and one of the greatest conflicts we've dealt with as a country, how did they respond to this idea that this is the time that we're going to declare a national day of thanksgiving, and we are going to give thanks to God in the moment that is... in, in to that point, the most difficult moment in our nation's history. Yes, overall, I think the response was good. Now, of course, uh, a little bit different in the South. They didn't really like anything that Lincoln said, but sure. in the northern states. Um, and, and it's interesting. It was, it was presented as a national uh, Thanksgiving, and so it was a very patriotic gesture. And uh, some of the illustrations in the newspapers at the time, for example, there's a very famous illustration by Thomas Nast, the Civil War illustrator, who also gave us the Republican elephant and the, uh, the Democratic donkey. But uh, he does a, an illustration called, uh, for the first that, that first National Thanksgiving, called the Union Altar. And it's Lady Liberty kneeling in thanks at the, uh, the Union Altar. And it depicts uh, the armies giving thanks in the, in the field and uh, people in the town and country and even, uh, uh, you know, and uh, newly freed slaves giving thanks. It shows Washington kneeling at Valley Forge and Lincoln at prayer in, in the White House. So uh, it was it was presented as and, and, and received as a patriotic holiday, as well as a day, a day to give thanks to God. And so because it was considered a patriotic act, um, people were willing to they wanted to participate. They were, were there official, um, were, was there a day off like there is today? Was, uh, you know, I don't know how retail would have handled this. I assume there was no Black Friday at that point. But what was no, the, no the cultural Friday. embrace of, of this holiday uh, early on? I think, you know, it varied from place to place. People did uh, have uh, Thanksgiving meals. And, of course, Thanksgiving Day itself was, was nothing new. Um, it, had, it had been around. It's just that it had not been a, a day that everybody celebrated on one single day. And people did associate it with a, a nice a nice meal. Uh, as a matter of fact, we, we don't really know um, 
you know, what the official White House menu was back then. They didn't they didn't keep records like they do today. Uh, but from, you know, newspapers and, and diaries and, and uh, cookbooks, we have a good idea. And that uh, that, that magazine that, that uh, Sarah Josepha Hale edited, uh, Godie's Lady Book, they published a suggested holiday menu. And it was uh, boiled turkey with oyster sauce, roast goose with applesauce, roasted ham, chicken pie, stewed beets, coleslaw, turnips, winter squash, mince pie, plum pudding, lemon custard, and cranberry pie. That's quite a Thanksgiving feast, isn't it? Well, it, it is a, quite a Thanksgiving feast, and actually a lot of that sounds very familiar, and this is what a lot of us are going to be doing tomorrow, and I suppose in, a, in an age of uncertainty where it feels like a lot of things have changed, um, it's good to know that some things haven't changed, and when we, and when we eat our cranberries and pumpkin pie tomorrow, uh, we will be paying homage to those who came before us and did the same. We are talking with John Cribb, the author of Old Abe which recounts the last five years of Abraham Lincoln's life. You can get that wherever books are sold. I hope you will. But this can this conversation is going to continue on the other side of the break. A lot more about Abraham Lincoln and Thanksgiving. Stay with us. Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The Federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. Go to frc.org slash pro-life maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash pro-life maps. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed, so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, i definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download, or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony Perkins, getting you ready for the Thanksgiving holiday. And we are talking with John Cribb, who is the author of Old Abe. And we're talking today with Mr. Cribb about the connection between Thanksgiving and Abraham Lincoln, one of everyone's favorite 
presidents. Now, Mr. Cribb, we had mentioned in the last segment the, the uh, proclamation, the quite famous Thanksgiving Day proclamation that uh, President Lincoln read. Did he actually write that? Was that something he did, or did he have somebody on his staff take care of that for him? Yeah, this is one of those cases where he did not uh, write what is a very beautiful uh, proclamation. Uh, Lincoln, obviously, yeah, he often wrote his own stuff. He wrote the Gettysburg Address and uh, the, the famous stuff that he's well known for. But this one was the work of his Secretary of State, William Henry Seward, uh, which was the man that Lincoln beat for the Republican nomination in 1860. And he took him into his cabinet. And uh, Seward was uh, an acquaintance of Sarah Josepha Hale, the, the woman who was urging them to have this national Thanksgiving Day. But uh, he came into Lincoln's office in the White House one day with this draft uh, proclamation in his hands, and he said, Mr. President, the states are always accusing us of trying to steal their rights. I've got another state right that I think I'd like to steal. Mm. And Lincoln says, what do you want to steal now? And he says, the right to name Thanksgiving Day. And he shows Lincoln this proclamation. They they read it over, and Lincoln says, probably with a twinkle in his eye, he says, well, I think a, a president has a, as good a right to thank God as a governor does. Let's, you know, let's do this. And so they set aside the last Thursday uh, for that first national uh, annual Thanksgiving Day. Well, that is a fun story about that. One of the one of the uh, kind of political things that happens around Thanksgiving is the annual pardoning of the turkeys. And I, I know that President Trump has already announced that. Uh, I think here there are two turkeys, corn and cob. I think are their I names. Saw that, yeah. Who will who will once again be allowed to survive this Thanksgiving holiday, though many of their uh, kin will not. Uh, how is it that Lincoln became the first president to pardon a turkey? Well, that's another fun story. Uh, somebody had sent a turkey to the White House to be fattened up for a holiday feast. And Lincoln's youngest son, Tab, made friends with this bird. He named him Jack. And people would look out the White House windows, and they would see uh, Jack following Tad around the grounds of the White House as he was out there playing. One day, Lincoln was in a cabinet meeting, and uh, Tad burst through the door with tears in his eyes and crying. And he said, Dad, uh, Papa, they're, they're going to kill Jack. You can't let them kill Jack. And Lincoln stops this cabinet meeting and, and tries to explain to Tad that Jack has been sent to the White House to be eaten. And Tad says, but he's a good turkey. It would be wicked to kill him. You, you mustn't let them. So Lincoln gets a piece of stationery, and he writes out on it. He writes, the, the turkey Jack is pardoned, and his life is to be spared. And he gives it to Tad, and Tad goes scrambling off to save his friend uh, Jack from the butcher's block. And so Lincoln does become the first uh President's part of Turkey. Later on, presidents in the 20th century, and kind of start this up again, uh, Harry Truman reportedly pardoned one, although there's some uh, question about that. But presidents after him, Ronald Reagan was apparently the first to officially pardon Turkey, but it was really George H.W. Bush that made it the annual uh, custom that, that we know today. Well, it's a fun one, and I think every parent of small children who uh, are horrified at the prospect of killing an animal that they have developed a, <laughs> yeah. an emotional connection with can relate to that story. And it is a, it's a great human uh, story about President Lincoln. And you just yeah. want to not make your kids sad. And everybody can relate to that. Um, <laughs> yeah. what, it, interesting, during this time of lockdowns and quarantines and that whole conversation that we're having, that Lincoln was actually quarantined during the first national Thanksgiving as well, wasn't he? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Donald Trump is not the first president to have been quarantined in the White House. Uh, Lincoln gives the Gettysburg Address exactly one week before that uh, that first national Thanksgiving Day. 
Uh, so he gives that address on November 19th. And he, he leaves Gettysburg that evening on the train and comes back down to D.C. And by the time he gets to the White House, he's not, he's not feeling too good. And the doctor looks at him, and it turns out he has a mild form of smallpox. So they immediately put him into you know, kind of a semi-quarantine, and they start vaccinating everybody in the White House who'd come into contact with him. So Lincoln is laid up for two or three weeks, and the newspapers report on his, his health every day. And then, you know, a couple of days he works from bed. But that, that last Thursday in November that he set aside for Thanksgiving, his secretary, John Hay, reported, he, he wrote that the president is confi- confined to his sick room. So I'm afraid that Lincoln did not get to sit down to a big, you know, big Thanksgiving feast with his family on that, that very first national uh, Thanksgiving day. Which is sad, but he did make it possible for all of us. And we know that President Lincoln is is famous for having freed the slaves. But he actually had a slaveholder at Thanksgiving that first year in the White House, didn't he? And what, what's the background for that? Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, that It was his best friend, really, probably his best friend his whole life. His name was Joshua Speed. And uh, he met Josh Speed way back in 1837 when Lincoln moved to Springfield, Illinois, to start practicing law. He shared a bedroom with Speed above a general store where uh, Speed was a partner in the store. And Lincoln spent many happy hours sitting beside the wood-burning stove, you know, in that store. But at any rate, when Lincoln's president, uh, Speed, and his wife, Fanny, they come to Washington to visit their good friend in the White House. Speed is a slaveholder. He has a large plantation outside of Louisville where they use slave labor to grow hemp. So it's just a, it's just a reminder of how complicated circumstances uh, were during that time. Life is complicated, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's important not to necessarily judge those who came before us through the lens of our, of our current culture. And because things are complicated in ways we can't always understand. And that is true for President Lincoln, as it is for everyone who came before us. John Cripp, thank you so much for joining us. Again, the, the book is Old Abe, and I commend it to you. Find it wherever books are sold. When we come back after the break, we're going to send you into Thanksgiving. We're going to talk a little bit about religious freedom with Ariel Del Turco from Family Research Council. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss it. Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled, Three Ways to Read the Bible. This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There is no better time than now to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out His meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com slash ways to read. That's frcblog.com slash ways to read. When President Donald Trump announced his nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, critics were quick to point not to this qualified nominee's record, but rather to her religious affiliations as a reason she ought not be allowed to serve as a Supreme Court justice. In an increasingly secular culture, it is not only the media that views faith as problematic for those appointed to judicial positions. 
Senators, particularly Democrats, have inappropriately interrogated nominees with comments and lines of questioning spanning theology, congregation membership, and associations with faith-based nonprofits, all seemingly with the intent to discredit the nominees. Family Research Council recently released a publication addressing this important issue. To learn more about what the Constitution says about religious tests, visit frc.org slash religious tests. That's frc.org slash religious tests. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash human sexuality. Welcome to Washington Watch. Welcome back. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins as we take you into Thanksgiving. We One of the things that we can be thankful for here in the United States is the freedom that we do have. And I know often we talk about religious freedom and the threats to it, which are real. But when we live in America, we have much to be grateful for on this front. And in fact, one of the things that we track at Family Research Council is the threats to religious freedom around the country, or around the globe, rather, in addition to around the country, but around the globe, to give us context for what our lives are like, and really in, in almost every way, how much better it is here than other places around the world, despite the concerns that we have. And we are going to have that conversation. In order to have that conversation, we are going to, I'm going to bring in Ariel Del Turco, who's the Assistant Director of the Center for Religious Liberty at Family Research Council, and she has written a, an important new publication called Criminalizing Conscience, the Status of Apostasy, Blasphemy, and Anti-Conversion Laws Around the World. Ariel, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's great to be with you, Joseph. Well, it's great to have you. Why don't you first tell us a little bit about this publication and why it is that we at Family Research Council put this together at all? Sure. Well, this report is really intended to track basically every instance of an apostasy, blasphemy, or anti-conversion law around the world. And the reason that we care about this is because it's one of the primary ways that governments around the world restrict religious practice. And that obviously violates from a person's very basic ability to freely live out their faith. And this is actually a very relevant topic. Um, Unfortunately, uh, we saw a few weeks ago that Pew released a study finding that government restrictions on religion around the world have reached the highest point in the past 11 years. So this is one of the ways that governments violate, um, or that governments restrict religion, rather, and that's why we track it. Okay, and and if this is a high point over the last 11 years, 
What do you attribute that to? What's happening globally that is making apostasy, blasphemy, and anti-conversion laws more popular than they were previously? Well, government restrictions come from a variety of sources, but the sources that they come from for these laws specifically are typically um, in Muslim countries, especially for apostasy and blasphemy laws. And they often feel that their societies are threatened when people convert away from Islam or even insult Islam. So as a way of strengthening um, the Muslim hold on that society, they'll instruct enact these laws. And for anti-conversion laws, these are often found in Hindu or Buddhist countries. And we've seen recently, especially in India and Nepal, these laws are not, they're not only enshrined into law, but really the society itself, the people at a cultural level, really work to enforce them. They're really offended when people um, convert away from Hinduism, which is the majority of religion. And unfortunately, they'll often enforce the laws themselves in mob violence. So that's something that's really concerning that we've seen. According to that uh, Pew study that you cited, there are 56 countries, as we kind of reach a a new high globally, 56 countries have a high or very high ranking when it comes to restrictions on religion. What are the conditions that qualify a country for that high or very high ranking? Yeah, well, one of them is going to be um, these laws, actually, apostasy, blasphemy, and anti-conversion. And we see that they're surprisingly widespread around the world. Our report found that 17 countries have apostasy laws, and apostasy apostasy laws prohibit leaving your faith, as we talked about, mostly in Muslim countries. And 70 countries have blasphemy laws, and these are a little bit broader. They include um, prohibiting insults against religion. So these are popular in Muslim countries, but we also see them as a holdover from more um, European countries as well when they had um, state-affiliated churches. And then six countries have anti-conversion laws. And these laws are very dangerous, obviously, because they affect people's lives. They can be imprisoned for these things. But also 11 countries actually carry the death penalty for apostasy and blasphemy laws. So this is something that affects a lot of people, but also it can potentially be life-threatening. Do we see these? You mentioned how there are specific regions, mostly Muslim countries, that are dealing with apostasy and blasphemy laws. Do we see uh, that these these laws spreading to other places of the world that, that we wouldn't maybe expect them? Is it just becoming more intense in regions where we already had these problems? Or do we see this kind of intolerance prohibitions on conversion and apostasy laws? Uh, do we see that spreading outside of regions where we might expect them to see? Thankfully, we don't see these laws especially, or particularly rather, being spread to other regions. We do see, as I mentioned, especially in India and Nepal and places like that, where unfortunately the cultures themselves will enforce the laws. One of the um, most problem countries is actually Pakistan, and we'll hear a lot about um, Christians and others actually being imprisoned and put on death row for um, blasphemy, which is really any perceived insult to religion whether it's benign or intended or not. So that's a concern. And it's especially concerning because even when the country itself or the court system does not enforce the death penalty, we've seen multiple instances of mobs gathering and enforcing that themselves. 
this is a, it is concerning. I think it, I hope it provides context for most of us in America who realize, you know, it is a problem when, when the federal government tries to basically ignore the First Amendment and try to compel people to do things that they don't want to do. And I even think we see hints of these in kind of speech code, hate speech laws. Uh, even now, as, as we see pressure to basically require pronoun usage in a certain way, there are, there are hints of that in these blasphemy kind of apostasy laws. You're not allowed to say that because it offends the state's uh, belief systems. But where have we seen, uh, is there any good news from anywhere around the world where people are moving away from this, even though we see in, in certain cases us moving closer? Yeah, well, thankfully, a few laws or a few countries since the last time we issued this report in 2019 have repealed their blasphemy laws. And those actually are European countries. They're Ireland and Greece. But it's so important that even in these countries where the blasphemy laws might not have been enforced uh, very often and were not. It's still important because having these laws on the book sends a really bad signal to society. And even as you were talking about, it sends a signal that we don't actually value free speech. We don't actually value religious freedom. We value the feelings of another religious group more than that. So to see these countries move away from these laws is a really positive thing. But where we've seen the most improvement, and I think a really radical change that surprised a lot of people, is in Sudan. And Sudan repealed its apostasy law within the last year. And that's significant because for decades, Sudan had been recognized as one of the worst violators of religious freedom. It was led by an Islamist dictator who constantly harassed Christians, shut down churches, but in 2019, he was actually overthrown and a new transitional government was established. And even though the country is still a Muslim-majority country by quite a bit, it's really taken a lot of great moves toward embracing religious freedom, and that includes repealing its apostasy law. And it's not that long ago, some of our audience members might remember, that in 2014, Miriam Ibrahim uh, was sentenced to death for apostasy, and she was a mother with a young child, and she was pregnant at the time, so she actually gave birth to her child in jail on death row, and thankfully, due to a lot of international advocacy and the pressure of international governments, she was released, but she is someone who um, was threatened by these laws not very long ago, in addition to others, so that's a great improvement in Sudan, and that should be encouraging for human rights advocates everywhere, and it's certainly encouraging to me. It, it is encouraging, and it's something that we can be thankful for, and people in Sudan can be thankful for as well. Ariel Del Turco from the Center for Religious Freedom at FRC. Thank you so much for joining us. Ariel, before you go, tell us where people can find this publication, Criminalizing Conscience. Yes, you can find it at frc.org slash ABA laws. And you should go find it there, frc.org, CBA, ABA Law. Say that one more time. I'm sorry. <laughs> Slash ABA Laws. Slash ABA Laws. And go do that because you need to understand what's going on around the world uh, so you can pray the right way and so you can be thankful for what you have today. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. Now, in the last few minutes of our program, we are going to bring in my friend and colleague, David Clausen, the Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview at the Family Research Council. David, thanks for joining us today. 
Well, thanks for having me, and happy Thanksgiving to you, Joseph. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. And what I want you to do for us today, David, is we, we just got done talking about some challenging religious freedom issues. Uh, what is it that we should be thankful for? We know that the world is in turmoil in Sudan and Africa and in the United States, and, and, and basically the world has always been troubled. But as we have a few minutes before we really officially begin to celebrate this holiday, what is it that we should be thankful for? Well, I think it's a great question, Joseph, and uh, it's been a difficult year for many people with the pandemic, uh, the contentious election we just had in this country. But, you know, as Americans, and especially as Christians, we have so much to be thankful for. And I, I was thinking about this earlier. And, you know, that is uh, it, the posture that Christians should have is one of thanksgiving. That That's one of the themes in Scripture, and especially in the New Testament. And actually, we see in the Old Testament, too, uh, where God works on behalf of his people and acts of salvation, deliverance. But the verse, I think, Joseph, is really helpful for me thinking about how where my heart should be come Thanksgiving it is First Thessalonians 5.18, where, where Paul tells the, the Christians in that early church, he says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And I read a verse like that in my Bible, and I think, you know, why would Paul say that? You know, his world was every bit as chaotic as ours, perhaps even more so, because Christianity was kind of a weird minority sect. Well, earlier Paul gave the reason why we should be giving thanks, and it's because God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that ultimately we might live with him. That's verses 9 and 10 uh, earlier in the passage. I think it's just important for us as Christians uh, tomorrow as we're going to gather, hopefully with our friends and our families, uh, despite the stress and confusion of the last few months, just to remember that ultimately, uh, as believers, we should be the most hopeful and thankful people uh, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that right there, I think, is such an important thing to remember. It's we are hopeful, we are joyful, and I, let's go back to a moment that that the point that you made about the church in Thessalonica that Paul was writing to there in First Thessalonians, where I mean, you know, we think we have some challenges. But I think by any objective measure, whether it's quality of life, religious freedom, political climate, whatever it is. Their life was harder than our life in those of us who are blessed to live in America today. And that is the context in which he's telling him, be thankful in all things. Which tells me that we're not supposed to be thankful because of our circumstances. We're supposed to be thankful in spite of our circumstances about things that are much more important than our circumstances, aren't we? No, you're absolutely right. Again, you know, you can, as maybe someone who's grown up in the church or as a I've uh, been a Christian for a long time. We might read through this passage really quickly, but it's actually quite jarring when you, when Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances, realizing, you know, the context he's writing is when Christians are being persecuted. Uh, Paul himself was killed for his faith in Rome, and yet he's saying, you know, despite uh, our circumstances, and he's not mitigating. You know, we, we do go through terrible things. Paul himself went through a lot of challenging circumstances and challenges for his faith. And yet, uh, Scripture, he would tell us elsewhere that even we go, no matter what we go through, 
those things are light and momentary uh, in comparison to the surpassing weight and glory of knowing Christ and having that personal relationship with God. And I think that's that's the message all of us should uh, just take a little bit of time tomorrow around the table just to consider the things uh, that God has done for us. And if we do that, I think we'll all realize we have a lot to be thankful for. And, and David, I think James chapter 1 gives us a lot to say about this as well, a lot to think about, because we're supposed to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. Why? Because the testing of our faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And when we deal with hard stuff in life, as we do, every single one of us, we have different challenges, but every single one of us is dealing with something. And remembering that the life that we are living right now is temporary. And it is not the goal. Comfort on earth is not the purpose for which God made us. Eternity with him in heaven is the purpose for which he made us. And the things that he allows in our life now, even when we don't understand them, they have a purpose that we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, so that we will be like Jesus, which is the purpose for which he has created us. And in being like Jesus, we will find our purpose, our joy, our satisfaction. Isn't that what we have to be thankful for? It is, uh, uh, Joseph, and I'm thinking about just tomorrow when we, we celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, uh, one of the quotes that I was reading earlier was from William Bradford, who helped lead the pilgrims over. And despite all that they went through, uh, one of his exhortations to the, the pilgrims gathered there in Plymouth uh, was he said, Praise the Lord because he is good and his mercies endure forever. Uh, and I think that is uh, the, the perspective that we should have, especially as Christians. Uh, and these are things we can hold on to. David Clausen, Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council, thank you so much for taking the time to send us off in such an appropriate way into Thanksgiving. And friends, we hope that you will be thankful because there is so much to be thankful for. We'll see you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.